The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. Never give up your integrity. Nothing's worth it. Nothing is worth it. And you don't need to give that up to be successful. If you let anybody or any situation or your fear, most importantly, convince you that you have to give up your honor and integrity, you are making a bad deal. In 1985, at the age of 22, Tammy Simon already knew that her purpose was to disseminate spiritual wisdom. She didn't quite know how yet, but armed with a mere tape recorder and without any business background, she set out to start figuring that out by recording spiritual teachers like Ram Das and selling those recordings to others in the community. Fast forward 33 years, and Tammy now sits at the helm of a $27 million media empire called Sounds True. She works with some of the most recognizable spiritual teachers in the world, like Eckhart Tolle and Jack Kornfield. And she also strives to run a truly conscious company that takes all stakeholders into account. On this week's episode of World Changing Women, we sit down with Tammy to hear the inside story of how she built Sounds True one recording at a time, how she built such a significant company with very little outside investment, what wisdom she's gained in the 33 years of running her business, and how she strives to honor what her soul is asking of her as a business leader. Welcome to World Changing Women. Can you talk to me a little bit about the origins of Sounds True? Sure. It's become a legend in my own mind. <laughs> and many others. <laughs> well, tell me what part of the story actually is important to you? What intrigues you? The genesis of the idea. Like sure. What was the first spark? Well, I think before the spark became alive, there was a field of dark torment. <laughs> At the time, actually, one of the books I read was by someone named John Wellwood, and he talked about something called the fertile void. So let's just say I was in the fertile void or the dark sea of torment. And I didn't know what to do with myself. What I did know was that I wanted to be of service, wanted to make a contribution. And then I felt that I'd been given a lot. I'd been given a great education and actually a great education that I walked away from. I dropped out of Swarthmore College. So I'd been given so much and there were high expectations of me as a person. And I was lost in the wilderness. And so I started praying. And the prayer that I said was, God, I am willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. 
And, you know, I don't know if the prayer itself generated the field that magnetized the idea that became Sounds True, or if that's just a bunch of magical thinking. But I do believe that there was something in my inner orientation behind that prayer that invited a task that might be thankless, that might involve a lot of sacrifice, that might be hard. And I was saying out loud in a clear statement that I said again and again and again, I'm willing to do it. I just want to do this work of what I was calling God, but you could say the love, beauty, truth force in the universe. So I believe in my magical little inner world that saying that prayer and clarifying my availability, the universe gave me the gift of a vision to disseminate spiritual wisdom. And those were the three words that at a certain point I heard whispered like in my ear. And I knew that was mine to do. That was mine to do. So disseminate spiritual wisdom. Mm -hmm. You hear this. Mm -hmm. How do you translate that into action? What were some sure. of the first things that you did? Sure. So when I heard that sentence, it was after I was meeting with someone who was a successful entrepreneur and an advisor. And he looked at me and he said, Tammy, you know what you want to do with your life. You're just acting like you don't. You actually do know. And when I walked out of his office, that's when I heard those three words. And it felt like uh, I was in some kind of altered state when it happened, that I wasn't quite walking on the ground. But then after I heard the three words, my feet hit the ground. And I was walking on the ground and I started thinking. And I was like, how am I going to do that? I wonder what I should do. Well, okay, I could use print. I could disseminate spiritual wisdom with print. But part of the reason I dropped out of college was the books were so big and it took so <laughs> long to read them. It was so laborious. And besides, that's a very mature industry, book publishing. Am I really going to break into book publishing? I don't know about that. And then I thought also about video. I thought, you know, the television culture is part of what created such a deep sense of loneliness and alienation in me as a child when I saw my parents watching television night after night. And I thought, why are my intelligent parents falling asleep in front of these stupid TV shows? Mm. They could be talking to me. We could be playing together. We could be outside under the sky. But instead, there are like two different TVs going on in the house, one parent in one room, one in the other. What's going on? So I was just allergic to video as mm. a medium. And then I thought, well, what about audio? I could disseminate spiritual wisdom through audio. And then I reflected on how, when I was in college, for the brief time that I was, I enjoyed listening to lectures. And there was something about it, especially when the teacher was turned on. And when they had a way of delivering what they were talking about that was really compelling, I noticed I perked up. And I really wanted to hear what they had to say. And I thought, I love listening. And I love the human voice. And at that time, I had also listened to enough Dharma talks in my life. I had been to enough meditation retreats that I knew that talented spiritual teachers delivered their spiritual teachings in a natural style. It has a sort of transmission power 
that you can actually commune with a speaker's mind, with their cadence, with their energy and enthusiasm mm -hmm. and conviction, and that there was something special that happened in the oral tradition. And that's part of the reason why many of the great spiritual teachings were always passed down from teacher to student through an oral lineage. The tradition that I've actually studied in for 15 years was called the ear-whispered lineage, with the idea that a teacher would whisper the most advanced teachings. That that's how you would receive it. And I think something different happens with print once something, I mean, you work in the print medium, so you know, and things go through the editing process, and in the editing, there's a change. And sometimes the strength and passion and transmission power of a speaker is not lost in print, but often it is. But with audio, it's right there. It's super visceral. As I started reflecting on it, I thought, I love audio. Besides, it's a very inexpensive medium to start with, <laughs> and that fits my budget. So let's disseminate spiritual wisdom through audio. That's a good place to start. So what did you do next? So sure. you it goes spir spiritual wisdom, audio, next step is? Well, then I went and had my follow-up conversation with this successful entrepreneur, and I told him this is what I wanted to do. And he said, I own that building across the street. Why don't you rent a space for me? And you can start. It's only $200 a month. This was in 1985. And I was like, okay, $200 a month. I can do that. And I then remembered how I had seen these high-speed cassette duplicating equipment machines. So there's a master unit, and then you hook in various, they call them slave units, and you string together, and you can take one master cassette, and in three minutes you can duplicate 10 copies, 15 copies, however many of these units you can lug with you and chain together. And I was like, huh. I could go to these workshops that I currently can't afford to go to, that I want to go to, when Ramdas comes to town, when Stephen Levine comes to town, when Joan Halifax comes to town, when these teachers I want to study with, I could go to their workshops, I could record them, and then I could use this high-speed cassette dubbing equipment, and I could make copies for the participants who are there. And this is a way I can go to the workshop for free. So that seemed very clever. I also liked the idea I could sit in the back of the room with a pair of headphones on and listen to everything without engaging in all the participatory exercises, which made me nervous. <laughs> and I was like, I don't really want to talk to everybody in the room. So I can kind of lurk in the back with headphones. And it was a pretty easy pitch to the authors because nobody was recording their event. And I said to them, look, I'm happy to give you a duplicate master and you can do whatever you want with it. All I want to do is not get charged, come in, sit in the back, record this, make these high-speed copies, and once I cover my costs, which were really just my time, I'll give you a share of the profits. So you'll get a submaster and some cash out of this, and I'm a nice, lovely person in the back of the room. And a lot of authors said yes. I bet. How old were you? I was 22. So 22-year-old, were you just looking up their phone numbers, or how are you getting a hold of these really high-profile authors? I was looking in things like the listings of events coming up in the fall, looking at events, and then I was getting on the phone and contacting them and saying, I have this idea, and it won't cost you anything, and 
I'm nice and let's do this. So did you know at some point there that you were on to something? Was it, did it start working immediately? Well, I knew I was on to something small, mm-hmm. meaning I would walk away from one of these weekends with a wad of cash in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it was a few hundred bucks or something. But then it was a couple thousand bucks at some of these workshops. And, you know, that was big money for me at that age. That was real. And that was cash in my pocket after I attended a workshop that I got a lot of value out of. It was amazing. But I didn't really think it was much of a business per se. I thought it was an educational lifestyle that was working for me. (laughs) And I was happy. And then I met someone a few years later, three years after doing this. And he walked into this little space that I had rented. And by that time, I had rented an additional space because we needed more room. And on the wall were all the cassette masters of all the workshops I had recorded. And they were all labeled very beautifully on their spines. And he said, you're sitting on a gold mine, Tammy. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm sitting on a bunch of unedited cassette masters. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, no, you know, we need to treat each one of those like they were a book and edit them properly and give them a cover and treat them like a standalone information product. This was the phrase that he used. And there's an audience of people who want to buy those. And at the time, he had experience in direct marketing and developing catalogs. And he said, I'll do the direct marketing and catalog work. You can do the editing work and creating the signed agreements with the authors. And before you know it, we'll birth a real business here. And he earned 20% of the company through a sweat equity arrangement. And we got to work together. The three years prior to that, as you were doing all these recordings, was it just you? It was me and maybe I'd have a couple people help me, yeah. you know, kind of thing. But it was just, a, it was, you know, less than five people at any given time were, were working on it. So from that point, I mean, now we're 30 plus years later. Yeah. How did it morph from what he helped you create to something larger? Sure. Well, after we created this archive of live recordings and edited them, He and I both saw that if we had a studio, we would have more control over the curriculum design. Because when you go to a live event, you inherit whatever, you know, there's noise coming from the next room, whatever. So we built a studio. And the story behind building the studio was cool. I knew a musician in town who wanted a studio. And he said, if you pay for all the materials, I'll build the whole studio out for you. And as long as I can record my own music in it when you're not using it. And I was like, that sounds perfect. And he's like, I'll do you a favor. I'll make it pink. (laughs) And I was like, you're my kind of guy. The studio is going to be pink, really? So he built a studio. And now we had the opportunity to not just record live events, but invite authors to come in and start really shaping content and really designing long-form audio trainings. So that grew our business. And we did that for a while. And then we had a few bookstores approach us and they said, some of our customers are coming in with your catalog and they're saying, could you order these products for me? Because I'd like to buy this from the bookstore instead of having to pay shipping and order it direct mail. And we were like, huh, that's an interesting idea. Maybe we should sell to bookstores. And then the bookstore said, well, we don't like your little cassette packaging because it doesn't fit 
our shelving units, you need to develop more extended cardboard packaging, and then we can put it on our shelves properly. And we were like, okay, let's develop packaging for bookstores. And then before you knew it, we started growing our what we call trade accounts, our bookstore accounts. And we had hundreds and then thousands of bookstore accounts. And our trade business became quite a bit larger than our direct-to-consumer catalog business. And then at a certain point, about 2000-ish, the person who had been my partner in developing the catalog business wanted to leave, and I bought him out. And we started growing the business in some different ways. And one of our authors came to me and he said, look, I have a bunch of books and I've self-published them, but we can't afford to keep them in print. I'm like, what do you mean you can't keep them in print? And he's like, you know, it's self-published. And he's like, my books sell themselves, but they need to be in print in order for them to sell themselves. And I said, why don't you share with me your numbers? He had five books. And I said, let me see exactly what's going on. And I was like, wow, he's selling a lot of books. And I'm like, I think I can keep your books in print. Like, (laughs) I can do that. And what's interesting, I'll tell you the name of the author. It's David Data. And we published his book, inherited it from him. He had had it in hardcover to date, The Way of the Superior Man. Mm -hmm. And it is still one of Sounds True's best-selling books. And we've sold hundreds of thousands, no exaggeration, of copies of that book that came to us because he said, could you just keep my book in print? But before you knew it, after we had five of his books, we started looking around at our collection of audio materials. And we were like, there's a lot of books, books, books that are talking. These little audio cassettes could easily become books. We developed a whole line of instructional book CD packages that had a CD in it. So we had, you know, Jack Kornfield's Meditation for Beginners, John Kabat-Zinn. We did this whole beginner series, Mindfulness for Beginners, Shamanic Journeying for Beginners, Healing Trauma with Peter Levine. I mean, we did a whole bunch of these book CD series based on our products. And then we just started getting into pure book publishing. And then that grew and we started a children's book line, which has now become one of our most popular formats. And then we grew into online courses and in-person events. Now we're offering a mindfulness teacher training certification program, which is mostly online, but also includes some in-person training And the business had this very natural flowering over the last 33 and a half years. Is there anything when you look back at those early days that you would have done differently now that you know what you know? Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, there's just so many things like gajillions, (laughs) gajillions. I mean, we've had so many challenges with technology and not having the right systems and the amount of money we've spent on various kinds of technical infrastructure that we've flushed down the toilet years later and had to rebuild from scratch. I don't think we did a very good job of really articulating in very clear language. I always knew in my bones how to align the culture, but we never articulated it in a way that worked for everybody. So we're still doing that now to create the kind of alignment that we really want at the business. But, you know, even though there are so many mistakes, I mean, I could just go on and on or things we could have done differently. But the thing is, Sounds True always has had heart and soul and a generous relationship with both our authors and our customers. And those are things that uh, will get you through. Mm. They'll get you through. If you have a product people want, and we had a product people wanted, 
people and, and want. Okay, that's pretty big. People want it. And then you're generous and honorable and kind and you're willing to do it for the right reasons even when you're not making very much money but you're making enough to keep doing it. There you go. It's one of my favorite things about being in the impact space is that I find the people that I get to do business with are doing it for the right reasons. And so all of the partnerships, everything that we do as a company, we get to work with people who we love rather than stomaching relationships with vendors who treat us like shit. Well, and you don't end up wasting a lot of your revenue on lawsuits and employee lawsuits and other kinds of all of the troubles that can just fritter away people's time and energy and resources. So another question I have for you is, how did this entire operation get funded? Well, when I was 21, my father died. And when he died, I received a small inheritance. It was about $50,000. And at the time, so this is back in 1984, and I was 21, that seemed like a heck of a lot of money to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do with it. And it was this successful entrepreneur I was talking to who said to me, Tammy, you do know what you want to do. Because I was asking him, should I invest it? Like, what should I do with this money? But meanwhile, I didn't really have a job. So it was a little bit, he's like, why don't you put it into yourself? So that was the initial money that I used. And then... About 10 years ago, when we were starting to expand digitally, we got our first investor. So the company was 21 years old, worth upwards of $10 million, whatever. And we'd never had any investment money of any kind, except that initial $50,000 that I used as the seed capital to start the business. But when I started looking at what it would take to build out the kind of online learning platform that I knew we needed to be successful and the kind of broadcast platform that we needed, I knew we needed a couple million bucks and that we didn't have it and that I had to go get an investor. So that investment money came in and there you have it. And here we are today. Did you look for a mission aligned investor? Or oh, yeah. In? I mean, my very first sentence was... I don't know if I ever want to sell the company. Ever? Ever is a long time. But that's what I said. I said, I never, I, I don't even want to have a conversation if you're going to ever pressure me to get your money back out of this. So this is not just mission aligned. This is like to some far extreme. I mean, I was talking to, at the time, some investors who were more, you know, mission aligned investors are like, Tammy, you kind of are like you have five heads and you're like a green monster. You're like, it's, <laughs> Like the way you're talking. And I'm like, look, I don't want to be in relationship with somebody who is going to pressure me to sell a business I love that I want to run my whole life as a way to contribute to the culture. That's not what I'm doing. I want to find somebody, and I believe there is somebody, I just believe it, who will see the good in what we're doing and who will want to amplify our good work. And I was lucky. So I found a genuine angel investor who basically said the way I see it is kind of like it's a contribution to a nonprofit. And that's what I want to do. I want to raise the whole field. I want to see the whole dialogue around spiritual teachings change. And I think Sounds True is the company to do it. And I want to support you. 
Mm. I feel very happy for you that you found that. Me too. I think it was some good luck or grace or something like that. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you mentioned previously was about the heart and soul. Yeah. That sounds true. Um, and I'm curious to talk a little bit about the culture at this beautiful place that you've created. How intentional are you about cultural practices here and how does your team work together? Sure. Well, you know, I think we've been strong and successful when it comes to building a good culture and that has not solved all our problems. So we have some problems that even having a great culture doesn't touch. So I just like to say that, but I think we have been strong on the culture side. And I think some of our successes have been articulating our core values, which are one being of service two, having a commitment to grow and transform ourselves Three, valuing exceptional teamwork. Four, having authentic connection, both with each other and with our customers and our authors. And five, being direct and kind. I got some feedback from other people recently that I should focus on being kind and direct instead of directing. Kind. <laughs> like, Start with kind, Tammy, and then be direct. It'll serve you better. Maybe we should change the values. I was like, okay, that's good. They're being direct. That's very good. Very helpful. So I think articulating that and having a, a culture, especially if you just start even with being of service, you know, I mean, it's like, oh, that's what we're doing. It's a really powerful feeling that comes from those words. Okay, so having a clear value statement, I think another thing is being very clear, and this was really true from the beginning back in 1985, that we're managing the business according to multiple bottom lines. And this is before people, purpose, profit, planet, whatever the common <laughs> language is now about multiple bottom lines, we defined it as our mission, our relationships with each other, and having a groovy workplace. And then the final bottom line was profitability. And that we always had to manage to all three and that that was always important. So I think that's also been a guiding principle. We also have an organizational psychologist who has worked with us, especially in the last five years, on all hiring above a certain salary level. Our organizational psychologist has also helped us deal when conflicts have come up because best of humans have conflicts and how do they resolve them with a lot of love and a lot of straightforwardness and a lot of good direct communication. So he's come in and mediated certain conflicts that we've had, and that's been incredibly useful, so they haven't escalated. And he's also done a lot of trainings at the business in helping people have difficult conversations and identify what they're feeling and speak from their feelings and talk about needs that they have from other people in the workplace. So I think we've done a pretty good job on the culture front. And it's come a lot through powerful articulation and then repetition, repetition, repetition. So hearing about those multiple bottom lines and one of them being this mission to disseminate yeah. spiritual wisdom, how do you know that you're succeeding at achieving your mission? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. We've been talking about possibly creating some kind of assessment tool, which we don't currently have for our customers, like before and after you go through this course. And when I was thinking about that, how do you know? I was part of a meditation community for 15 years, and at the end I thought, I wonder what happened to me. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I'm serious. Did I grow? I think I grew. Did I become a little more unhinged? I think I became a little more unhinged at the, at the same time. You know, did I open more deeply to all my emotions? Yeah, now all these emotions are present that weren't present before. They were there, but I didn't know about them. So I think especially when it comes to the spiritual journey, it can be hard. You know, am I getting enlightened or going insane? <laughs> That's the title of your next book. <laughs> There's actually a book that has a similar title to that. So it's hard to know. So I don't think we have a way of knowing. Mm. I think that there's a smell, there's a flavor, there's a taste, and you know what the smell, flavor, taste of bullshit is, and you know what the smell, flavor, taste of something authentic, helpful, golden, and illuminating is. And we've been very committed to stay true to that and follow our sense of smell and taste, but it's not quantifiable. Absolutely. So I'm curious, you talked about bajillions of mistakes that have been made. Yeah. What is the most painful lesson that you've learned in building this company? Now, your podcast is called World Changing Women, right? I think at the moment, I don't know if it's the most painful, but it's certainly the most poignant lesson are all the ways that I continue to give my power away or not believe in my own capacities such that I compromise in subtle ways, but I compromise what I know to be needed for the future of the company because I think somebody else knows better than me. Mm. Our first World Changing Women Summit was earlier this year and the amount of women who got up on our stage, people that I revere, that I hold in the highest regard. I, I put them on stage at my events as exemplars of success in business. They all had a similar sentiment of this not believing in themselves and having, I mean, Kat Taylor talked about this. She's sure. like reinventing banking. And she talked about waking up and not believing in herself and having moments when she was handing over her power. And I find yep. it's a common thread. Well, you, th you just in our world, I mean, Marianne Williamson will talk about the race she had in California for a political office and how she ended up listening to the people she hired who knew about politics and how you create a campaign. And she didn't end up speaking directly from her heart to her constituents. And when she had to think back afterwards about kind of the anatomy of the loss of that race. She was like, wow, I listened to the experts. I listened to the experts. I didn't listen to my own quiet heart that would require me to take a big risk because I was afraid. I mean, underneath it's fear. Do you have practices for being able to tap into that quiet heart voice? Um, I mean, sometimes we feel it and it's like a gut feeling, but sometimes we need to really like yeah. sit with it. Well, interestingly, I think the first step is to be with our fear. Because that's the thing. The fear can feel like panic. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, what if I blow this whole thing? What if I end up with, you know, no money? My investors lose 
my employees lose. And the worst fear of all, I'm a loser. I lost the whole thing. <laughs> I know the fear well. <laughs> right. And the reason I'm going there first, before we even find the voice of wisdom, the quiet voice of wisdom, is we can't hear anything if we turn away from our fear and call up someone else. Hi, I'm feeling really afraid. Could you tell me what I should do, please? What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? We're not really listening to ourselves because we're too afraid. So the first thing, and I think it's a pretty big thing, is can we be with our fear? Can we know it somatically? Can we know it and sit with it and not run away from it and be in a state of free fall? And can we just be in that free fall? How long can we be in free fall? And then I think if we can sit with that and be very brave to do it, because it hurts kind of, it's weird. I mean, you feel like you're kind of dying or something. <laughs> something like dying. Okay. Something like dying. Or kind of like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, that kind of feeling. It's like, oh my God, wow, I'm out of the plane. terrifying but if we can stay with it and then suddenly you realize okay this is a perfectly safe situation it's uncomfortable it's strange but i'm okay everything's okay huh and then there's a, a weird kind of brilliance that's there it's almost like the space of fear opens up and there's a crack. And in that crack, there's a light. And that light is actually, I think, our heart light. And that heart light says something like, you know what to do. You know the answer. It might not work, but you're, you're taking a reasonable risk. This makes sense. It feels right. It's not glamorous necessarily. Okay. It's not sure. It's not safe. But it's good. And I know when I know that, that's the right voice. I'm also curious. So you've been at this for 33 and a half mm -hmm. years. Have you ever had a time when you just wanted to walk away? Oh, or sure. Give up? Sure. Julie, my wife says your relationship to sounds true is like any long-term relationship. You threaten divorce and then you recommit. <laughs> At the, at the moments when you're threatening divorce, how do you stay committed? How do you get through those? Well, some of it. I mean, you know, I've been with Julie, my partner, for 17 years. So in the last 17 years, when I'll say something to her like, God, I should just sell that thing, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she'll look at me and she'll say, you know what? You need a couple days off. You need a couple days off, Danny. And that's almost always the sign. Like this, when I get to that place of... I just don't want to do this thing anymore. It's just too much. It's too hard. It's too demanding. It's too relentless. It's whatever. Too painful. It's asking too much. I almost always need something like a long walk in the woods. So switching gears a little bit. Curious about what does your daily routine look like? What practices do you have that keep you grounded? Mm -hmm. Or how do you just kind of get through your days? Yeah, well, often I wake up really early, especially if I have a podcast. So 
where I'm being doing the hosting. So I'd say usually around twice a week, I wake up at about 5 a.m. And on those days, I spend that early morning time reading a book and getting ready for a broadcast that I have later in the day. On the days that I don't have that, uh, I wake up more like, you know, 7, 7.30. Occasionally, I'll take the dogs for a walk. Often, I'll make Julie breakfast. The magic words in our relationship are, honey, can I make you breakfast? <laughs> That's like the magic. That's the magic. And so I try to say that as many mornings as I can. You know, I don't, I'm not a person who's like, you know, I wake up every morning and I set my alarm for 32 minutes of meditation or something. That's not really my style, but there's something ha that happens in the morning where I give my life over to the universe to be a servant of creation. And there's a way that in the morning I connect with that. And there's a connection with space and with infinity and with service. And that's what gives me the fuel for the day. So I'm curious about if you can tell me about a life-changing moment that you've had. Hmm. Wow. What kind of life-changing moment? Anything that comes to mind. Well, when I met my wife. That was a life-changing moment. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, so it was 17 years ago, and I think what was life-changing was that, first of all, she knew that we would spend our whole life together. I didn't. But there was a sense of the future of my life being written in a different way, and I could feel that. I'm curious for you, what is the most important thing in your life right now? Hmm, that's a big question. What, what occurs to me is this phrase, honoring my soul. And I feel that there are certain soul needs that I have. And those are needs to relate to humans in a certain kind of way to relate to some of my responsibilities in a certain kind of way, to relate to quiet and openness and space and nature and beauty. and I want to do that. That's the most important thing all the time. And that also requires a certain kind of expression and stepping out and taking risks and being bold and brave, too. All of that's honoring my soul, too. If you were to give two to three lessons that you learned from this work of creating a business to business leaders or aspiring entrepreneurs, what would those lessons be? Do something you would do even if you weren't getting paid. Or if you were only getting paid, like, a little. <laughs> Do it because you love it. Mm -hmm. Do it because it's what you do. Do it because it's, uh, quote unquote, in your genius zone. It's in your zone of, wow, when I do this, I feel so good. It feels right and I'm making a contribution to other people. My life feels meaningful. So that's the first thing. If it's not that, 
don't, don't do it. It's going to ask too much of you. You won't have the resource. You won't be able to get through the tough times. And if you do have that, you can get through anything. It's kind of like you can do anything for someone you love. Mm. Like if you love your child, what do parents do for their kids? You know, I mean, it's amazing what you hear. And businesses ask that kind of thing. And you have to be able to do it. You have to open a vein again and again and again and again. And if you don't love it, you won't be able to open it. You won't be able to find the vein. So that's the first thing. I think that's the most important thing. Uh, the second thing is never give up your integrity or your honor. Nothing's worth it. Nothing is worth it. And you don't need to give that up to be successful. And if you let anybody or any situation or your fear, most importantly, convince you that you have to give up your honor and integrity, you are making a bad deal. That is the deal with the devil. Don't give it up. Hold on to that. It is the most valuable thing you have. And then the third thing, have a good business model. <laughs> or number one and number two won't make you successful. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not quite sure if you have a good business model, make sure of a few things. You're solving a real pain point in the culture. If you're not solving a real pain point, then I'm not, I'm not sure your business is needed. It's not just about you and what you love to do. Solve a problem. Solve a real social problem. Solve a problem that people really have that they want to pay to have solved. So have a good model and base it on, I think, not just solving some problem willy-nilly, but solving a problem that will help our culture move forward because we have a lot of problems right now and we need the best and brightest people to bring their passion to creating businesses that will solve those problems. Amen. And our final question. We are living in very interesting times right now. I'm curious what is giving you hope? You know, I can say, and I don't think I've always been able to say this in my life, I love humans. <laughs> I mean, here we are. We've created so much destruction as a species. I've often had the view that humans were sort of gross and vulgar, violent and terrible. And all that's true. But as I've gotten older, and I'm 56 now, and I've collaborated with a lot of humans, I've met a lot of beautiful humans, and I've read hopeful and inspiring books by a lot of humans, I've also come to believe, actually, in humans. Meaning, there are a lot of us, a lot of us, who will and are giving our lives for a future that will be filled with care and justice and kindness. There are a lot of us doing it, working together, loving each other, and having a damn good time doing it. That gives me hope. Mm, me too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your great questions. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. 
A huge thanks to Tammy Simon and her crew over at Sounds True Media. Also to Nina Bernardin, our incredible podcast manager, and our podcast partners on this, Story Pop. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you.